Hello there, I'm Patrick Stroke. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here. That's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today, I'm joined by Daryl Grant, Senior Vice President of the newly minted Topin Merrill. Topin Merrill provides innovative SaaS solutions that deliver high-fidelity SEC regulatory filings, XBRL solutions, and virtual data room due diligence services. Daryl co-leads Topin Merrill's Bay Area Capital Markets team, working directly with C-suite execs, law firms, corporate finance, and legal departments to manage IPOs, mergers, spinoffs, along with all routine SEC filing requirements. Today, we're focusing on Topin Merrill's virtual data room, or as the millennials like to say, VDR services, along with due diligence services for mergers and acquisitions. Daryl, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So to give our audience a little bit of a context about you before we get into all things Topin Merrill, tell me what led you to this point in your career. A long journey, but we'll we'll try to keep it as brief as possible. I started out my career in New York City in the late 90s, exactly 1999, just before uh, the 2000 uh, stock market bubble crash and et cetera. And I always wanted to be in the capital markets. My college career in finance training gave me the aspiration to be an investment banker, but I ended up deciding to become a financial printer. And uh, my first IPO was Intercontinental Exchange, uh, who later went on to acquire the New York Stock Exchange. And once I did that first IPO, it led me to want to do more in this space and have an opportunity to do some of the most largest mergers in stock market history, including the Merck Sharing Plow merger, the Pfizer YF merger, and most notably the JP Morgan Chase Bank One merger. you know, I, I continue to, you know, climb the ladder working from customer service and to various management roles, including leading our XBRL efforts for a company called Bound in in New York City. And then five years ago I moved here to Silicon Valley and I took a role as a internal global account manager working for capital markets accounts uh, for companies that were going through a scale of acquisitions, spinoffs, et cetera. Um, and then I you know, landed here in Merrill about two and a half years ago as senior VP, formerly managing director. And um, I, I got a taste of what it meant to really support companies because in this role, I'm responsible for connecting our clients with solutions that fit their most prominent needs. And because we're talking about the M&A space, the Merrill Virtual Data Room has been a market-leading product for the last 15 years. And um, it's just been sensational to support companies going through an M&A due diligence with that technology. It's interesting you mentioned that you've been working with financial printers and then moved over into this other space. Uh, Even though we've gone from a very paper-intensive to a quote-unquote paperless world, it's amazing how much there's a need for the the printers and the record keepers, record makers uh, in the support services, isn't it? It really is. You know, the the world of virtual data rooms, you know, really kind of kicked off back around the time that Enron was going through their challenges. And there was a lot of due diligence that was required, as you would think, with the transaction of that size. 
even in that time, the virtual data room didn't exist. People still flew into large conference rooms reviewing banker boxes full of documents with someone guarding the door to make sure that no lawyer, investor, banker, et cetera, were to leave with any of those very sensitive documents. And, you know, you can imagine what that looked like over a course of weeks, you know, these papers getting wrangled and also searching for specific information within this large conference room and sometimes banker boxes to the ceiling full of documents. Uh, but, you know, Enron tapped uh, Merrill and a few other companies and, you know, we put together what was then uh, one of the first virtual data rooms in the market. And fast forward to today, everything's done digital. All of these transactions are moving quickly through the marketplace as a result of stakeholders having instant accessibility and also track tracking mechanisms in place through a proprietary virtual data room like Merrill's. Wow. So you could say that uh, while Enron may have spawned a lot of negative things, uh, specifically I'm thinking about Sarbanes-Oxley and the big regulatory environment that followed right after, one of the good things was the technological uh, emergence of electronic data room to replace the banker's boxes. So that's a nice byproduct from Enron. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I think that's a great story to bring forward. I'm, I'm going to totally steal that from you. So we'll, uh, uh, for, for our listeners of podcasts, at least they'll know where I came up with that, with that idea. Um, now, are there, you know, what types of deals or industries are best suited for using a data room? I mean, we understand that the data room is there and it's replacing those warehouses in law firms or whatever with a bigger box of information. But are there particular deals, type sizes, or industries that are better suited, or is this one size fits all? It's one size fits all. And the beauty of our technology is that it can fit the mergers such as a LinkedIn Microsoft, which is a massive uh, acquisition uh, between two companies and merger. We were fortunate enough to have our technology be a part of that process. Uh, but it can scale down to a $10 million acquisition, or it can be a sell-side event. It can be, if you're a life science company, in-licensing, in out-licensing of your, your drug products. It can be used for FDA approvals as a portal in that space. Um, it's really morphed into multiple communication tools. Um, Sideline topic, it can be used for fundraising if you were going through an equity of events where you were raising capital from venture firms or others. Uh, any matter of due diligence where you are thinking about sharing sensitive documents that you want no one else in the world can see outside of your firewall, virtual data rooms are the perfect lockbox to invite parties in and give you full visibility as to what those parties are looking at and how long they're looking at specific pages, which gives insightful intelligence around um, the interest of those investing parties now allowing you as the seller of your assets to have full uh, transparency into what people are doing and now give you some foresight into what questions they may ask you, which now facilitates the deal. And so we've seen deal traction um, actually accelerate through our virtual data and technology. I, I can imagine, yeah, I, I would almost describe it as, while it is a data room, I would almost recharacterize it as a data vault because of the security and so forth. I want to skip a, a little bit ahead on, on uh, some of my notes with this. Is 
um, our, our listeners can't see what a data room is. I mean, conceptually, you get an idea that this is an electronic version of having all of your records in one spot, uh, maybe like a Dropbox, but a very secure one. But for our, our listeners who can't really see what a data room looks like, um, why don't you describe just how the process works, um, you know, from opening an account, how documents are put in there, how security is done, ac how access is granted, because I know there are different levels of security where you can have certain general files accessible to multiple parties and then keep everything else confidential uh, and then open up permissions and tracking who looks at what. Walk, th walk me through that as, as a you know, prospective customer, how you would onboard somebody and what would it look like? The onboarding process, thank you, Patrick, is very, very straightforward uh, in the spirit of today's uh, business applications or, you know, email. Let's say you're the user, the first thing you would get is a link from our team inviting you into your virtual data room after it's been set up. You open up that link and it would immediately take you to your login page. From that login page, you would create your username, password, log in. You'll have your terms and conditions that will be already pre-populated. You accept those terms and conditions. It's usually you can set it up as a user, as an administrator. You can set it up as a one-time click, or you can make parties agree to this due diligence um, disclosure every time they log in. But once you're in the room, you're essentially looking at the entire landscape of what you would need. So left, there's a file folder structure already laid out, which tells you what the hierarchy of your respective index is for your virtual data room, and that's something that could be set up by our team, set up by the individual user, with simply just right-clicking and updating uh, information through your keyboard. And once you're in that room, if you say had, you know, five to 10,000 or 20,000 pages of documents that are on your desktop or in your hard in hard drive, internal hard drive, set up in a folder, you can simply drag and drop that entire folder as it stands with all of the internal folders, hierarchy, indices, labeled, and all the documents included will move right into that virtual data room as they were on your desktop, uh, which is easy to set up. And then once set up, you add users. Those users are being, you can grant those users access on multiple levels. You can say, view, print, or download, or even more exciting in today's world is you can have administrative rights to uh, revoke access from folks. So with those options, you can say, okay, these guys are just being intro introduced to um, our data room. We don't want them to see too much. You have view-only access. Now the deal starts to heat up and say, okay, you can have view, print, and download access. And now the deal's really taking Taking root, taking root, and you're excited, and traction is there, and you say, okay, I want them to have download access, but I still would like control. You can say, you can set your permissions to the extent that when that party downloads that document, you still have control over that document remotely. So if the deal dies or things pivot, you can revoke access without having access to their computer. You can do it all from your desktop through our virtual data room. Uh, it is the most secure platform in the market, has all of the certifications included, ISO 27001, uh, SOC2 Type 2, GDPR, um, and extensively there's penetration tests done on our platform uh, on a monthly basis to ensure that we have the highest security in the marketplace. Uh, 
Um, so that's generally how it would feel as a user in some of the security components that ensure that all sensitive documentation is kept safe. With um, with this, I, I can imagine just the usages come up. I mean, can you give me a, a feel for the growth of usage with uh, virtual data rooms from your experience? Exponentially. Everyone who is um, entering into a, a sell-side or a buy-side event generally would have a banker that they uh, have advocated to help them facilitate the, the transaction. And the banker, nine out of ten times, really ten out of ten times these days, will say, hey, you need to get an enterprise-grade data room, um, which would be us or one of our peers and ours being the leading product in the market today. Now, there's um, obviously other different technologies that are out there that uh, were actually, ironically, <laughs> they, you know, in some ways found their niche when you talk about sort of the, the consumer versions of like a, you know, box, Dropbox, you know, just by name, but nothing, you know, nothing against those firms. But, you know, the file sharing environments really started, as I, date, as I mentioned earlier, kind of dating back to those earlier days around Enron and, you know, Merrill being in place. We never took it down a consumer route, but for for an M&A transaction, that data room is now being used, you know, our technology or our peers for nearly 100% of the transactions out there in the marketplace, especially if it's of the magnitude of the LinkedIn, Microsoft, or NetSuite, Oracle, uh, just a few that we've done. Yeah, I, I, I just made it, it's, it's become virtually ubiquitous. It's a check the boxes. This is one of your must haves you have to have. Just otherwise, you run the risk of if, if you want to be, you know, put your company off for sale, you're going to have prospective buyers and they're going to need information and you can't field all those requests and respond real time for them. It's better if it's off in a secure location, you've got somebody else, somebody else monitoring it. So, um, you know, it, it, it's just a logical first step. Um, how would you say that Topa Merrill is different from other virtual data rooms? One clear differentiator that jumps off the page is the speed of our technology. Um, it's the result of a significant investment, uh, a re-architecture, which has taken about four years to come to market. It's been in market for over a year now. That uh, that is five x faster than our room, and we've done speed tests on other platforms and our peers, and we're close to five x faster than many of those others. So speed uh, is is one of the key factors. Another key factor is security. It is the most secure platform in the market, as far as we can tell, based on our penetration testing and also our certifications. And I, I think the third and the biggest component, which our customers tend to lean on more than they plan to before they open up that room is our service. Our 24-7 service operations are there to support our clients and it's, it's, it's not a, a paid service, so they can call and use these services as much as they mean and what does service mean. Um, if you're if you need to have documentation uploaded, our team can do that for you. If you need to add users, our team can do that for you. If you want to delete users, our team can do that for you. If you want to prepare an indice for a specific transaction, because we've seen thousands and thousands of these transactions, we know what these indices look like and your index for your, what documents you should be including in your due diligence. 
a lot of times we put these in front of clients and they'll say, wow, I forgot to include X, Y, and Z. Thank you. Um, our team can do that. Um, and then furthermore, you know, we offer a consultation to say, you know, what, what the timing typically would look like, you know, in terms of, you know, setting up your room, executing your room, inviting users, and et cetera. And also the reporting systems, which is like, you know, is like no other. We have dashboards that will show you down to the page level how users are in behaving and interacting with your sensitive documentation. That visibility is, 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 is leading the market in, in very imp impactful ways. And our customers have intelligence to the extent that, you know, today's a month, today's being Wednesday. If you have a call scheduled on a Friday, you can go into this data room on Thursday night and see exactly what investors are looking at. So when that call happens on Friday, you're way ahead of every question that they're asking because you can see where they're spending their time. And that's been very valuable. Oh, I, I can imagine that. And if you're looking at a potential M&A transaction with a competitor, let's say, and you can see is the, how much time is the competitor spending looking at your schedules or looking at your financials as opposed to looking at your client list. And, um, you know, you can get some insights there, I think, is, is, is helpful. And that, I think, also you just dovetailed into it on your due diligence services because you've seen thousands and thousands, literally, uh, of these transactions. You know uh, what information is critical and what information is nice to have, but, you know, it's not as essential. And uh, that also helps with the sophistication uh, and how serious you are as a, as a player in M&As. If you're if you're prepared, you'll have all the documents lined up. And I think it's helpful having you use a sounding board to say, hey, we just checked a list of all the stuff. Um, why why isn't this here? And it may be maybe material or may not. But that's nice having that uh, extra set of eyes uh, looking over looking over your materials as you get ready to essentially stage your house for sale. Absolutely. Well, you, you kind of uh, referenced into this because you have seen literally thousands of M&A deals, probably more in the last couple of years than you have previously. Um, can you give us any insight on any trends you're seeing, uh, you know, in tech, investors in M&A in general, or what have you seen in terms of either deal flow, deal size, just snapshot of, of a, a, a trend that, you know, uh, would be helpful for the audience just to be aware of as somebody who's seen thousands of these deals. Yeah, I think what is really compelling is, you know, using an example, you know, what happened with Adaptive Insights recently. They were three days away from ringing the bell in New York and they were acquired by Workday. Um, so what we're seeing is that, you know, once companies disclose their financials, et cetera, through an S-1 filing with the SEC in that public filing, that buyers tend to line up. And the, you know, the opportunities for a sell-side event tend to increase, especially in the life science space. Uh, but when you talk about tech companies, that is, I think, becoming more and more prominent. Uh, but, but furthermore, uh, when you talk about M&A transactions and trends, you know, there, I think this is 
tried and true that most companies will exit via sell side compared to those who will exit via IPO. And I think those trend lines are still strong and we don't see much of a divergence from historical um, traction in that, in that, in that regard. Uh, I think something to be interesting for the audience to know in terms of M&A is that, you know, that the valuations that we see are, you know, start, they're, they're equally staggering as you would, you know, anticipate with, you know, sort of comparing them to prior rounds and equity raises. Um, we're starting to see a lot of, of, of companies really maximizing their value in an M&A environment as opposed to, say, an IPO. Or you imagine, I mean, last year, 2018, how many IPOs were there? Like 30? Um, as opposed to maybe? I think in the, I think, you know, if you look at the global stats, it's somewhere north of 270. I think locally mm-hmm. in the Bay Area, it was just north of uh, 30. So, you know, it's, you know, I mean, last year was a strong year for, for IPOs. And I think 2019 has, you know, the legs to, replicate a lot of what happened last year or even potentially break some of that, those records even with the government shutdown because we're still very early in the year. But overall, I you know, you'll see a lot more uh, sell side M and A events than you will um, these larger Oh I I, I think yeah uh, I forget which organization was uh, Middle Markets magazine or whatever. Uh, one of those sources quoted that it was about roughly between a thousand and twelve hundred M&A, middle market M&A transactions happening per quarter steadily for the last couple of years. And so there are, you know, exponentially more M&A transactions than, than there are IPOs. And uh, that's a great insight that, you know, once, once you get out there with the US-1 filing, you, you pretty much hard and fast set a rate. And if somebody can go north of that, uh, that's a great uh, buying opportunity out there. Absolutely. And then furthermore, when you look at, um, you know, with companies that are going through the sell side events, it's competitive. You know, your strategic partner or buyer is looking at multiple companies within your space um, and they're intelligent about, you know, the space that they've already been shopping for a while, which is typically most companies are and their analysts are, you know, sharp. So you do want to gain an edge. However that you can gain that edge, as small as it may seem, it can move the needle. And if you're showing up to a buyer with, you know, an unsophisticated data room that's generally used for consumer usage, it does give you a disadvantage. Um, And so using an enterprise-grade data room, not because it's a product of ours, we don't, you know, it's not why we recommend it. I truly recommend it because you know, I, I, I know for certain that it does facilitate a better deal outcome for anyone selling their company. I, I don't think there's any better reason in M&A when you have a, a service out there to consider is uh, the judge on whether or not the service is accurate is does it make consummating a deal and successfully closing easier or harder? And if it's if it's the former, you go with it. If it's the latter, you stay away. It, it's just that simple. Absolutely. And buyers are smart. They they do due diligence all the time. So when they receive a link from, say, a, a, a tool data room or they see our data site one, they go, okay, this company 
is on it. They're sharp. What we're potentially going to buy has been securely managed. So I feel good about this transaction already versus the three other links that they may give that may not be an enterprise-grade data room. So your company may not be you know, on par in terms of value, but you're certainly getting a better look and a more sophisticated look uh, when you use an enterprise-grade data room. So it's uh, my mother used to always say, don't be penny rich and dollar poor. So it's, it's worth the spend. No, that's, that's, that's absolutely correct. Another quick thing on the trends. Uh, are you seeing, uh, give me a balance between financial buyers and uh, strategic buyers like corporate corp dev or whatever. Uh, are you seeing changes in the amount who leads who in terms of the number of transactions, corp or um, uh, private equity or financial buyers? I, I think the splits are, you know, I wait for the numbers to flush out, and I think they're pretty, um, they're pretty much on par with what we've seen in the past. Um, you know, there is the CBC, you know, space has grown exponentially. I think every large multinational or large corporate company, corporate firm issuer has a, a venture arm, and they're looking strategically to grow because organic growth is somewhat easier that way sometimes instead of doing all of the development yourself. Uh, so I, I think that those trend lines will continue to grow and, and it, we've seen them grow over the last couple of years. Um, but private equity is still very much involved in, in the space. They uh, are experts in some areas in terms of maximizing value and turning companies around. So I think we'll continue to see that. Some of, sometimes it happens strategically like uh, you know, Cavium recently was acquired and, you know, part of that acquisition was intentional by both parties because the private equity firm has the specialties that help them accelerate what they were planning to do with their products. So, you know, that that I think we'll continue to see uh, CBCs and strategics be more engaged and involved in, in, in their buying habits. But uh, and they're getting in a lot earlier. Um, you know, they're very much engaged into Series A, Series B, Series C companies to build a rapport and relationship with founders, and you know, be a part of their trajectory and support them uh, prior to an acquisition. Uh, whereas, you know, private equity tends to you know participate a little bit later sometimes. Um, but strategically, I think the, you know, we'll, over time, we'll we'll continue to see more and more corporations. Um, buying, buying other companies and, and leading that trend. All, all that is good for us in the M&A business. So I uh, appreciate all that and some great insights here today uh, from Daryl Grant. Uh, Daryl, how can our audience reach you to get uh, a demo of Topa Merrill's data room or the other services they have just to kick the tires and see how it could work for them? How can they get hold of you? Absolutely. If you're looking to get in touch with me, you can reach me at, on email at Daryl, D-A-R-R-Y-L, Grant, G-R-A-N-T, at topanmerrill.com, T-O-P-P-A-N-M-E-R-R-I-L-L.com. If that's too much, just reach me on my mobile directly at 917-847-4111. I'm a native New Yorker, and I can't let my New York phone number go. So, uh, though I've been in the barrier for five years, the best number to reach me is there. Excellent. Daryl, thank you again, and we'll be talking to you for other insights on Topin Mountain. Have a good afternoon, Daryl.
Thank you so much.